Solomon is the, the king that we're going to focus on here today. He's the first king, really, in Second Chronicles. And he is the king, I would say, of gold and glory. The king of gold and glory. Obviously, we know the story of Solomon. He prays for wisdom. He prays for wisdom. The Lord approaches him in the night and asks him to make his request. And Solomon feels the, the inadequacy of his own skills, his own experience. And he does not know how to lead uh, such, a, such a vast number of people. And he's asking the Lord for wisdom. And that was his request. That request so pleased the Lord that he not only gave him wisdom and made him the wisest man ever to live, but he, the Lord also gave with that wisdom tremendous honor and riches and great glory. So that, so that Second Chronicles starts us out with a very high point. Here's Solomon, King Solomon. A very high point and he started well on every front in humility in prayer and in second Chronicles chapter 6 we read about the great prayer of Solomon we read about the glory that fell upon the temple and and the glory of Solomon was such that the Queen of Egypt uh, she came and uh, she she was breathless. She couldn't, she couldn't hardly believe what she saw. And that's, that's King Solomon. And it kind of goes downhill from there as you read Second uh, Chronicles until you finally end up with, near the end, uh, King Josiah, which was also one of the great kings. So one final era of glory. But let's think about King Solomon. And the fact that he wanted to build God this temple, what can we learn from that? In Second Chronicles chapter 6, verse 1, it says this, Then Solomon said, The Lord hath said that he would dwell in the thick darkness. In the thick darkness. Now, what does this mean? It's talking about the fact that uh, the Lord made his appearance in the cloudy pillar in that in that cloud in the tabernacle in the wilderness and that was where he would be and it says here in thick in thick darkness and when you think about that for a little bit that is that is a an intangible um almost temporary, when you think of a cloud, when you think of even vapor, um, it's something that you can't, you can't get your arms around. It's unpredictable, especially in the tabernacle days. It was a temporary structure. It was meant to be moved around as the cloud uh, moved around. And so they would follow that. And so there was this sense where it was I don't want to say temporary, uh, but there was a sense where it was certainly unpredictable. And what Solomon wanted to do 
is he wanted to build a temple, something more permanent. And this is where we have now the tabernacle days are over, the temporary tent of meeting is over, and now we have this permanent structure in Jerusalem, and this is where the Lord would promise to meet with his people. It's no longer in a cloud of thick darkness, but in verse 2, I have built an house of habitation for thee, and a place for thy dwelling forever. I think this is helpful uh, if we want to be trying to learn from these kings. What can we learn from this? We learn from this that what Solomon wanted to do, what David wanted to do, but what Solomon executed was he wanted to build the Lord a permanent dwelling place, a place where the people of God could come and expect to meet the Lord. I think this is significant. Now, Solomon obviously goes on to say that nobody can really build God a house. The heavens can't even contain the Lord. So what are we talking about? We're talking about a place of meeting, a place where the Lord would promise to meet with his people. And this is significant for us. I want you to really enjoy the significance of this for us today. Because because what we have here is a place where God's people would know that the Lord would be. Yes, uh, he was in the past appearing in that thick cloud, but now there's a place, a meeting place, a permanent place where they can come and gather and they would know that the Lord has promised to be there. I have built an house of habitation for thee and a place for thy dwelling forever. And the Lord did promise to meet with his people there at that house. And that's the significance for us is that we no longer have a physical temple. We're in this era now, the New Testament era, even Christ himself when he was speaking to the woman at the well said there's going to come a time when you don't have to worship in a mountain or in Jerusalem, but uh, they that worship the Lord will worship him in spirit and in truth. It is a spiritual house now that we're talking about, a spiritual habitation, a spiritual temple, a temple not made with hands. And we, our bodies, yes, are the temple of the Holy Spirit, but collectively we are all living stones, lively stones, all fitly joined together in this great house. It's a habitation for God. And every time we come together to pray with one another, we can have the same expectation that the Lord will meet with us there. Just like Solomon had that expectation, just like the people of God during this whole era had that expectation. It wasn't something special about the actual brick and the stones and or even the beauty of the, of the place. It's just that God had promised to meet his people there, just like God promises to meet us. And this is why we come together. 
it's like when we come to this prayer meeting or really any gathering together of God's people, there should be an expectation for us to meet with the Lord. We're not here just to meet with one another, as happy of a thing that is. Church is not a social club. It's not a place to fulfill our social needs as as much as that also is included. But primarily, the tabernacle was called a tent of meeting. What kind of meeting? Was it meeting with other God's people? Sure. But primarily, that means a meeting with God. It's a tent of meeting. So when we come together for this prayer meeting, we are primarily meeting with God. So when we come together, we should have expectation to meet with God. That's, that should be the first thing. Don't come here not expecting to meet with the Lord. Come here and have great expectations to be meeting with the Lord because we together make up the temple of God, the habitation of God. Isn't that amazing? It's wonderful why the Lord would do that. Of course, he doesn't need us, and he's so great, he fills all the heavens, but he has chosen, as you read in in this in this chapter he has chosen to dwell there so his people can expect him to be there it's a mercy to us the lord doesn't need a house but it's for our benefit that this house was built it's for the people of god during solomon's time it was for their benefit it wasn't that solomon was trying to do something nice for god it was for the benefit of the people And just like that, it's for our benefit that we gather together. It's a house of habitation for God, a place for thy dwelling forever. And there's so much more we could say about that, but I'll just move on and say, talk about the prayer itself. This is uh, one of the longest recorded prayers in the Bible, the prayer of King Solomon in 2 Chronicles chapter 6. And it's, it's considered one of the great prayers of the Bible. And yet, what makes it so great? If you actually read it and think about it and you know, examine the words and uh, meditate on it, there's nothing really about this prayer that is so off the charts, great in the sense of literary, in the sense of poetry, in the sense of all those things that we would think are great about a piece of literature. So what makes this prayer so great? Well, if you read this prayer, as I have and thought and meditated upon it, what makes this prayer so great, I believe, is the heart of the prayer. And this is going to sound very um, cliche, but hear me out. You can hear, you can feel the heartbeat of King Solomon in this prayer. You can. It's, it's wonderful. And that's what makes this prayer so great. You know, when Solomon prayed for wisdom, when he first started out, he wasn't praying just for brain power. He wasn't just praying to be smart 
or to be a great administrator or whatever. He wasn't praying for those kind of raw skills. He was praying for wisdom. Wisdom is more than just being good at math. Wisdom involves the whole person, the whole being. I would say it's the head and it's the heart and it's the hand. It's everything. But certainly the heart, the heart is in there. Solomon himself writes, my son, give me thine heart. It's the heart that God wants. And that's what we can learn from this prayer, I believe. What we learn from this prayer is not the the grammar of it or the poetry of it or the, the structure of it. All those are good. But what we what we really learn is the heart of it. He wanted wisdom. Christ himself being the personification of the wisdom of God. And there you go. It's in this prayer. Wisdom, the heart, the heartbeat. There's nothing worse in my mind. And I've been in them. I'm sure you've been in them. But being in a prayer meeting where the prayers may be perfect, word perfect, grammatically perfect, precise in every way, theologically, grammatically, um, maybe even poetry too. Perfect. But there's no heart in there. And nothing will cast a cold spell on a temperature faster than a perfect prayer with no heart. With no heart. Um, And boy, oh boy, a a sheet of ice comes across a prayer meeting like that and it takes some effort to break through that. Uh, What we're praying for, what what I trust we are desiring in this prayer meeting is a prayer meeting that has heart. Yes, we want to pray with uh, theological precision, for sure. I'm not advocating uh, anything other than that. But if we don't have our hearts fully engaged, well, it becomes a, a, a very mechanical thing. It's form. It's a form of godliness without the power of it, is what it is. So what makes this prayer so great, in my mind, is the heart of it. And I would like to just keep that before us, reminding us that when we make our prayers to God, not that we have to have fake heart or fake emotion. By the way, you can fake anything. You can fake anything. Um, We're not talking about that. You know, I don't know if you've all had the opportunity to see Handel's Messiah. I was talking to just Denise yesterday about this, Handel's Messiah. But if you you see it, uh, whether it's in recording or in person, I've been amazed uh, some of the times that I've seen it just how incredibly convincing some of these artists can be they're singing things that are so intense especially the solo pieces he was despised he was 
rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. I mean, these words are delicately coming off their lips with tremendous emotion. I, I, I have a hard time believing that all of the people singing that through all the years that I've listened are all regenerate. I think that they put on a pretty good act. Well, my point is simply that you can fake just about anything. You can fake emotion. You can fake heart. But the Lord's looking for the real thing. We want real heart. So we're not looking for anything put on or fake. That sort of goes without saying. But the actual prayer itself is very simple. And, you know, Solomon is, is it starts in verse 14, but Solomon is praying in the first part. I mean, you just look at it in verse 14, in verse 15, in verse 16. He's repeating he starts out his prayer and he's by saying that you're a God that keeps covenant. You keep your word. You keep your promises. And then in verse 17, he says, Now, Lord, let thy word be verified, which thou hast spoken unto thy servant David. He is starting out and his prayer is laced with the promises of God. And that is our grounds. We come with God's own words and his own promise. Lord, you've said this. Do as thou hast said. This is uh, Solomon's prayer. And then the rest of his prayer is really just a refrain. It's, it's a repeat of things. And what is he asking? He's saying that if, if there comes a day when this happens, or if there comes a day when that happens, or when we're in captivity, or when there's pestilence, or, or whatever. He's like hypothetically putting out all these scenarios. If they turn towards this place, this place, and they seek your face, call on the Lord, Solomon's prayer is that God would hear their prayer. And do what? And forgive He's asking preemptively, if I can say it that way, for forgiveness. This is a great prayer, and I would recommend you reading it for yourself. But I'm just going to close by saying this. I will close with how Solomon closes in verse 40 of chapter 6. He says, Now, my God, after all this prayer, he says, Now, my God, let, I beseech thee, I beg of thee, let thine eyes be open and let thine ears be attent unto the prayer that is made in this place. And that is my prayer as well, that the, that the eyes of the Lord will look upon us in this place right now and the ears of the Lord will be attent unto the prayers offered up right here, right now, in this place. Amen.